Yeah, it does. Okay, we're going to return again to the subject of the covenant of grace, the eternal covenant of grace formed before God even made the world. Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer for a moment before we begin. Lord Jesus, my Master, I pray for the help of your Holy Spirit for myself and for all my friends here today. That we will hear, understand, receive, believe, and respond to your word. We thank you that we are sanctified, we are brought through more into our inheritance by receiving your word. Amen. Amen. So in recent weeks as I've been studying this, I realized that there is a seventh uh, covenant. I, th- I thought, why is there six? There should be seven. That's the way the Bible works, it, isn't it? And that is there is, a le- there is a covenant with Levi as well. Uh, but we'll b- deal with that with David because actually Jeremiah and Ezekiel put those two things together. Covenant with David and covenant with Levi we're doing today. So let me tell you a story to begin with, all right? The Davidic covenant. David wanted to build a temple, a house for the Lord. Yahweh himself had designed a movable tent called the tabernacle in the time of the Exodus to dwell amongst Israel. In fact, his tent was right in the middle and all of the camps were around him. That tabernacle was still around in the time of David, but he thinks because he now lives in a grand palace, God should have a palace as well. Now Nathan the prophet at first affirms David in his plan, but that night the Lord appears to Nathan and sends his word to David. Firstly, the Lord said to David, I never asked for a house. I never asked for a house. Then he said to David, he can't build a house for Yahweh. In fact, according to David's own account in Chronicles, God said to me, this is David, you are not to build a house for my name because you're a man of war who spilled blood. But then comes this statement from the Lord to David. Moreover, this is 1 Chronicles 17, if you want there's a few copies of notes if you want some notes after. Moreover, I declare to you, the Lord will build a house for you. It's interesting, isn't it, that that Hebrew word by it has meanings about house and household, the way the English has house and household, the house and family. When your days are fulfilled and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up for you, up your descendant after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne. Listen to this, folks, forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never remove my loving devotion from him as I removed it from your predecessor, a.k.a. Saul. But I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever and his throne will be established forever. Put simply, you may not build me a house, David, but I will build your house. So the Lord promises that the house of the Lord will be built by a son, a descendant of David. Knowing and believing that one of his sons would fulfill this prophecy, David named his next son Solomon, meaning man of peace, not a man of war, right? And he gave him the task and the designs and everything to construct the temple of the Lord after he had gone. But after Solomon's reign, his arrogant son lost the support of, generally speaking, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. The house of David lost most of Israel within two generations. The northern kingdom was then called Israel, and the southern kingdom, ruled by the direct line of David's descendants, was called Judah. Israel in the north had a series of kings, very few of them related to one another. They often gained the throne by assassination. 
more than 300 years past. And then the prophet Isaiah begins to prophesy to Judah in the south, and Amos and Hosea to prophesy to Israel in the north, that God's promise still stood. Can you imagine the courage of those northern prophets telling the rebel kingdom, David's still going to be your king? That would have taken some guts, wouldn't it? They were filled with the Spirit. Some of Isaiah's prophecies are very familiar to us. We know this one from Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Hang on, guys, are you confusing yourself? Is this someone sent from God or God? Both. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. That's interesting. There's page three. To establish and sustain with justice and righteousness from that time and forevermore. The Son is the mighty God and also everlasting Father. I'll make an everlasting covenant. My loving devotion promised to David. It's going to happen. It'll last forever. Amos up in the north. Amos. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. That's talking about the kingdom. And repair its damages, and I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And then he says this, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. I'm going to get ahead of myself here. But when they had a council in Jerusalem to determine the the condition of these Gentile people who are becoming believers in Jesus, should they be circumcised, should they keep the law of Moses, James stands up to summarize at the end and quotes that scripture. No, he said, David's kingdom is in place now in Jesus, and the Gentiles are are welcomed in without any restrictions Hosea again in the north afterward the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days but Israel in the north continued in their rebellion against the house of David but more importantly against Yahweh and his law and covenant so in 722 BC the Lord sent the Assyrians to overthrow that kingdom its capital Samaria, and to take away most of the people to exile in Assyria. The kingdom in the south in Judah lasted another 136 years. But the Babylonians had begun building an empire. They gained control of Jerusalem and Judea in 597 BC. They deposed Jeconiah, the descendant of David, from the throne and appointed his uncle to rule. They also took away the ruling and educated people from Jerusalem. So amongst the people taken away were Ezekiel and Daniel. But Jeremiah the prophet stayed in Jerusalem right until the very end. And Jeremiah is prophesying to them. The the city is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. You'll be in captivity for 70 years. But at the same time, he's also declaring to them, but you will be gathered again and David will be your king. Well, this is what the Lord says. David will never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor will the priests who are Levites, this is where the promise to Levi comes in as well, nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man before me to offer burnt offerings, burnt grain offerings and present sacrifices. This is what the Lord says. If I can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night should cease to occupy their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant and with my ministers the Levites who are priests so that David will not have a son to reign on his throne. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and as the sand of the seashore cannot be measured. Remember Abraham? God using that expression? 
so too I will multiply the descendants of my servant David and the Levites who minister before me. Malachi later quotes this covenant with Levi, the Levites, six times. It's a big issue. I didn't know that until I found it out a couple of weeks ago. No one told me. I thought, why didn't you put that in the books, guys? But anyway, there you are. David as king, Levites as priests, not just for a time in Jerusalem, but get this word, forever. How's that going to work? That's what the prophets were saying. And Ezekiel in Babylon prophesies against Zedekiah. And in Ezekiel 21 he says, I'm a, the Lord is against you, you profane prince of Israel. The day has come for your final punishment. This is what the Lord says. I remove the turban, take off the crown. Things will not remain as they are. Exalt the lowly, bring, the low, bring low the exalted. A ruin, a ruin. Both Jerusalem and the kingdom will be a ruin. David's fallen tent, Amos calls it. It will not be restored until the arrival of him to whom it belongs, to whom I have assigned the right of judgment. The Davidic kingdom of Israel would not be restored until God sent and appointed the right king at the right time, who would be a direct descendant of David. He would also be a shepherd king. Again. And when God does that, puts his king again on the throne... God says he will establish his covenant, his eternal covenant, his covenant of peace. Let's finish the story. Judah continued to resist the Babylonians. So Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege to Jerusalem in 5876. Sometimes we have to give two dates because our year runs differently from Hebrew years. They overcame the city, destroying it and the temple that Solomon had built. So 400 years after God's promise to David, the kingdom of Judah ends in exile in Babylon. And the throne of David was then empty for almost 600 years. But then this happened. One day, wise men, Magi, came from the east, went and asked Herod the Great, the ruler at that time, who wasn't even a Jew, where is he that is born the king of the Jews? They said very innocently, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Jesus is King David's greater son. Both Matthew and Luke go to the great length of providing whole genealogy, genealogical, genealogical, say probably David, histories to show that David, that Jesus is the direct descendant of both Abraham and David. And in fact, Matthew starts it, Matthew 1 verse 1 starts this. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Two big points hit straight away as he starts his gospel. He's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. Now listen to this. Have you thought about this before? When the angel appeared to Joseph, don't be afraid to take this woman as your wife because the child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Did you ever read what he said, the angel said? He says... Joseph, son of David. Joseph was the rightful king of Israel. He was a carpenter builder living in the north of Israel, the very far north. I doubt he went around saying, by the way, do you know know I'm actually the king of Israel? No. Because I'd which you aren't king until you sit on the throne. You're a prince in waiting, but you're only a king when you sit on the throne. Understand too that in bearing the label Messiah, Jesus is being called the Prince or King of Israel. That's what the Messiah was. 
When the people came to the Lord Jesus to ask him to help and heal them, they often called on him, Jesus, son of David. They were saying, you're our king. We know that you're our king. When he entered Jerusalem at the start of Easter week, the crowds were to come from the villages. It wasn't a Jerusalem welcoming committee, folks. When you read the Gospels carefully, it was the people from the villages who came up with him who'd laid their coats down and yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But then Jesus was betrayed, wickedly condemned and handed over to the Romans. And Jesus was asked by Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, it is as you say. When they crucified Jesus, Pilate ordered a charge notice in three languages be nailed up to the cross. And it read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Whatever he meant, Pilate meant by doing that, that was the absolute truth. This son of David, though, is greater than David. Listen to this from Luke's Gospel. Then Jesus said to them, how can it be said that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Thus David calls him Lord. How can he be David's son? He's David's son, but he's also David's God. In one person, Jesus. King David's greater son is the eternal son of God, the Lord of all. In Matthew 12, Jesus declares himself to be greater than the temple, greater than Abraham, greater than Solomon. In John 4, the Jews challenge Jesus with the question, are you greater than our father Abraham? Who do you claim to be? And he answers this, truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Which, of course, is the root of Yahweh. The I am gets extended into that holy name for God. Hearing that the Jews sought to stone Jesus to death, but he was hidden from them and left the temple area. It was not yet his time to die, and not yet in that way. Seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus makes such I am statements, which refer back to God appearing, which Ron has been preaching, appearing to Moses and to his rights, and saying, I am, and my name is Yahweh. You don't become king until you ascend the throne. So when did Jesus ascend the throne? When he ascended to heaven. When he rose from the dead, Jesus didn't walk back into the courts of authority in Jerusalem and claim the kingdom of Israel. But he ascended to the Father and received the kingdom of God and of Israel. It was prophesied in Daniel 7. Famous scripture in Daniel 7, which is about the first coming or the ascension of Jesus, not his second coming. It says, in my vision, in the night I continued to watch. I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. This is Jesus coming up into heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. Some scriptures, some versions have up. He approached the Ancient of Days, was led into his presence, and he was given dominion, glory, kingship, that people of every nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That happened when Jesus ascended. 
And when Jesus ended, that was fulfilled in Psalm 24, which we, we know. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift up your heads, O you ancient doors, that the King of glory may enter in. Who's this King of glory? The Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, gates. Be lifted up, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is God returning from battle, having won a victory. Who did that? Jesus, thank you. You're awake. Good. Jesus received the kingdom when he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. He's seated in the throne of God, ruling as God. And when the king sits on his throne, the kingdom has come. Jesus announced that to the disciples when he said this All authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. That's as big a statement as you could possibly imagine. There is no scrap of authority or power or dominion or rule that doesn't actually belong to him. But I want us to understand some things about the kingdom of Christ. It's the same as saying the kingdom of God, which is the same as saying the kingdom of heaven. Matthew in his gospel is writing for Jewish people. He he reserves the word God for special occasions, and so he quotes Jesus as talking about the kingdom of heaven. Luke and Mark aren't worried about that. They just put... God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. They are parallel statements. What the master speaks about in the Gospels is about his kingdom. His kingdom at work. Now, his kingdom will come and be completed, but it's at work now. But what's it like? It's now and not yet. We can be healed, but we're not going to be without dealing with diseases. We can be God can straighten us up, but we, we, we need to be straightened out again and again in different ways, don't we? We're, now not, we're not perfect, we're not mature, we're not complete. We're in process. It's now and not yet, but it's begun, it's growing, it's expanding. But it contains evil, a mixture. Not that Christ is evil, don't misunderstand me. But within the parameters of his kingdom, there's stuff going on which is not good. The Lord teaches that in some of his past parables, particularly in Matthew 13. The Lord does not yet eradicate all evil from the world. If he did, we'd all be dead. The wickedness of man continues, and it appears to me probably becomes even more depraved. Yet through all of that, Jesus reigns as Lord of all. Let me turn you to a foundational messianic prophecy, Psalm 110, verse 1. And 2. This is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord the king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord extends your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Peter quotes it on the day of Pentecost. We'll come back to that. But notice that Messiah's reign, this Davidic king's reign, is in the midst of his enemies until all his enemies become a footstool for his feet. Until they're all subdued under his feet. Peter uh, Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is Jesus. He's reigning over his enemies, even in the middle of his enemies. Scripture says the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. When the gospel has run its course through all the nations... And when there is a great final harvest of Jewish people also to faith in Jesus Christ, so God will have gathered all his chosen ones, both Jews and Gentiles, together into one family, then the Lord Jesus will return from heaven. 
He will raise the dead. He'll be the judge of all humanity. He will renew the earth. And all of those things are the fulfillment of this covenant that God made with David. That one of his sons would rule forever. It is an interesting thing. God's great son will bring God's Torah to mankind. Let's go back to when God made this covenant with David. David's response to Yahweh is very interesting. 2 Samuel 7. When King David went in, sat be- this would be he went into the tabernacle, which was still there, sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me this far? As if this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken to me about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your custom with man, O Lord? Now, interestingly, many Bibles in their footnotes say the literal translation is this, of that last phrase. And this is your instruction. Hebrew word, Torah, for mankind, O Lord God. The word instruction is better translated is also translated as law. David understands that Yahweh's promise of a great son reigning will lead to God's ways, God's word, being spread to all mankind. So Isaiah says, he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. God will show us his ways and teach us how to be and how to live. And that happens because Jesus is now king. In Jesus, Messiah, all nations are being taught God's ways. That is why the moral law of God is declared principles of what is right and what is wrong are still relevant to us today. Jesus did not come to abolish God's law. Jesus, David's greatest son, is building the temple of Yahweh as well. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, 586, 587 BC. It was later rebuilt, but in a much smaller scale. It was greatly expanded by Herod the Great. And it was still being built when Jesus was alive, and it wasn't finished until the 1860s. When they finished building it, there were tens of thousands of people who were unemployed, which led to some of the trouble with the Romans that then started. But it was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Listen to this. On the same day of the same month in the Hebrew calendar, that it was previously destroyed in 586 BC. Isn't that quite <coughs> eeky? You can look it up on Wikipedia. In the New Covenant, the Lord's temple is not a building. It's people. Individual people and the community of people. God, by his spirit, dwells in us and amongst us. His people. In the New Testament scriptures, those are the only two things identified as the temple of the Lord and of the Spirit, the individual believer and the community believers, the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is building his church, which is the same thing as saying he's building his temple of the Lord. When the apostles set about preaching the gospel, uh, they, they hardly missed a chance, particularly when they were amongst Jewish people, to declare that Jesus was the true king of Israel, and the son of David. Here's the close of Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He's declared that the Jesus who had been delivered up to the cross and laid in a tomb was alive from the dead. But now he says this, Acts 2 verse 33. Exalted then to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Therefore, this is his last phrase. He doesn't make an appeal. They have to appeal to him. What do we do? What do we got to do? He says, therefore, let all Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. Jesus is not going to become Messiah or Lord or King. He is now those things. You can follow it through the book of Acts. The apostles repeatedly declared this message. That David, Jesus is David's greatest son, the true king of Israel. David's Lord and God, risen from the dead, ruling from heaven. All of those things, of course, are summed up for us in three words. Sorry, that's the one I should have showed you. Say it with me. Jesus is Lord. When we say that, that means two things. He is king and he is God. He is king and God, my God and king. Jesus is Lord. That, by the way, is the confession we need to make when we're baptized, that Jesus is Lord. And that connection with David's repeated New Testament, James quotes Amos, Paul writes in Romans and Timothy, Timothy that Jesus is the Messiah, is the son of David. And in Revelation, three times, twice in the words of Jesus himself, he's connected back to David again. He's the root of David, the key of David, the root and branch of David. So where have we got to? Jesus is the promised son and seed of the woman, Genesis 3, who crushes the head of the serpent and rescues us from the fall. Jesus is the promised son, seed, and heir of Abraham. Jesus inherits all the promises of Abraham in himself, not in a people, in himself, in and through whom whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the promised son and heir and seed of David, the righteous king who reigns forever over God's people. And Jesus is greater than Abraham, Moses, Levi and David. He he preceded them, he formed and led them, he fulfills all that they foreshadowed. He was and is their God. The promises to Abraham and to Israel and to Levi and to David are all fulfilled in Jesus Messiah and through him. Now, what do I mean by through him? That they continue to be fulfilled in us because we are in Jesus. He's the seed of Abraham. So we are children of Abraham, heirs of the promises in Messiah. Our land of promised inheritance is not a bit of the Middle East. It's the whole of creation. He's the seed and son and heir of David, the king of Israel. We are made in him, and I'll come back to this in a minute, to be those who reign in life. He's the high priest according to the area of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapters 5 and 7 explore this. He's not a Levitical priest. He's of a greater, higher order, a more ancient order than that. The order of Melchizedek. God appoints priests. There's no natural descent to it. He just appoints them. We are in the same order of priesthood as Jesus. God's covenant promises in past times are not fulfilled by a Davidic king living on a literal throne in Jerusalem. And by Levitical priests offering animal sacrifice and rebuilt temple at some time in the future, they are being fulfilled on a much greater and grander scale than that. Cannot God fulfill his promise to David by placing his, one of his sons on the throne of heaven? Cannot God fulfill his promise to Levi by taking people from all nations around the world and making the priests of the Most High to serve him forever? Okay, I'm walloping through, so I'll probably slow down now. 
I want to take you to this scripture. Twice today, people have quoted the scripture to me, so we must be on something. 1 Corinthians 2. Sorry, 1 Peter 2. Peter, Jewish man, Hebrew man, <coughs> takes hold of these scriptures, which were said to, in the Old Testament to the people of Israel and to the Levites and so on, and he applies them to us, us Gentiles. Get it? As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices, not blood and goats and all that sort of again. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9 as well. But you, come on, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, kings and priests, a royal priesthood. No man in the Old Testament was a king and a priest other than Melchizedek. (coughs) Strange figure. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are royal and priests. We are both sons of David, according to the promise of God, and sons of Levi, according to the promise of God, as the Lord promised. And those labels are put on us three times in Revelation. Revelation 1, to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom, or otherwise made us kings. Priest to his God and Father, to beam be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5. Blessed be you, O God. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Revelation 20, at the very end there. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power of them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. And all of that takes us back to the very beginning. As Colin mentioned earlier. Colin's tuned in to me because we were chatting things on the phone last night. So he's already preaching last night. When God made Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden sanctuary in Eden, he appointed them as priests to serve him and as rulers to govern the earth. We are stepping in to those things, even now. Now and not yet. Even now we're stepping into those things. Pursuing his kingdom through his covenants, the Lord is bringing us back to be his priests and his kings or rulers and in the age to come, we will serve him and rule with him in a renewed earth, and he will dwell with us there. But let me punch these last two things out for you. Every Christian is a priest of the Lord. I said to someone this morning, when I first came to Harlow, I was introduced to some people, and they said, oh, I, I, I hear you, you've got a problem with being priests. I said, no, I've got a problem with anyone being a priest other than every Christian. I mean, women and gender and leadership is another issue. Priesthood, I don't believe in priests other than us all being priests. I believe that the new co- in the new covenant all believers are priests and therefore I also reject any clergy-laity divide. Let me say this to you. God doesn't have first and second class children. We are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you and I may be different. We may be more faithful or less faithful, more obedient, less faithful, less obedient. We may grow more or less in Christian character. But God does not make first and second class Christians. 
The privilege of every Christian is to enter the Lord's presence and, and serve him as we were this morning. Wasn't that refreshing this morning? Thank you, Sasha and team. We serve him with praise and thanksgiving and prayers. Our prayers are heard because our high priest is in heaven for us. I, you notice I haven't gone to Hebrews. We'd be here all day. But also because we are authorized as priests of the Lord to make prayers and intercession for others. A priest is appointed to make prayers for others. Your prayers matter because you have priesthood before God. We live as priests of the Lord among unbelievers. As priests out in the world, we represent the Lord to people as witnesses in life and words and represent the people we meet to the Lord in prayer. But the Levites were also charged... I'll get that in a minute. The Levites were also charged with teaching God's word, the Torah, to people. They were to be instructors. What does Jesus tell us to do? Having said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's not just an apostolic injunction. That's for all of us. We're teaching, we're explaining, we're... We're telling people about God's ways. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You, my brother and sister, are a priest of the Lord. You get to have access to him whenever you want. You get to listen to him whenever you want. You get to share God's word with people around you whenever the Spirit will provoke you to do so. It's not someone else's job. It's not someone else's responsibility. It's for every one of us. When the Holy Spirit fell upon 70 elders in Israel, a couple of them didn't turn up, but nevertheless the Holy Spirit fell fell upon them. They were prophesying in their tent. I don't know why they didn't show up. Maybe they were scared. Sometimes when you showed up, you died, you know, so in those days. Maybe they were scared. And they go and stop them, Moses. I wish that all God's people were prophets. Do you know what, what, what Scripture says? In the last days, the prophet Joel, I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Maid servants, both sexes, old and young, upper class, lower class, maid servants, men servants. There's no difference. We are all appointed by the Lord to be filled with the Spirit and to bear witness and to be prophets when we need to be prophets and priests when we need to be priests and bring God's word and bring God's help and bring God's grace wherever we are found. It's not somebody's job. It's the calling of every Christian. Okay, I've punched that enough. Let's do the next one. Every Christian is called to reign in life. Like Jesus, though, that means we rule in the midst of our enemies. You think that being a Christian should be trouble-free? Mm-mm. Who told you that? Go back and give them a sharp, pointed stick somewhere that hurts. <laughs> Why do we endure troubles? So that we may overcome and rule through them. That's why. Romans five seventeen. For if by the trespass of one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, Adam, how much more will those who receive an abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? How much more? We need more than, don't we? Not the insurance company. 
we need more than ordinary people to deal with this life. But we've got it in Jesus. We've received his life, his gift of righteousness. Then we can reign through these things. You're thinking, oh, I, I shouldn't be experiencing this. No, you're going to reign through it, brother, sister. You're going to go through it for the glory of God. Paul, of course, continues that argument down in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And these weren't unreal things. Oh, maybe, perhaps. People are experiencing those things. It is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But, or no, in all these things, in all these things, not, not going near those, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. But the nature of our warfare and the the difficulties we face and the pressure we're under as Christians is such that we are more in danger when we are resting than when we are resisting pressure. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't take time out and rest, but you're you're in more moral danger when you're resting than when you're resisting. Nearly done. There's a great old hymn that says, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greatest son. Hail in the time appointed, his work on earth begun. The Lord has graciously fulfilled his promises to and covenants with both David and Levi, in and through his son, our Lord Jesus. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our high priest of a bigger, greater order than Levi. And there's more than we have time for today to say about all these things, but to summarize, when the Lord Jesus died in atoning sacrifice on the cross, once for all sin, for all time, he was laid in a tomb. But he rose again after three days and ascended to heaven, to the throne of God. There he is both our king and our high priest. He is building his kingdom and the true temple of Yahweh, which is an individual people, each of us individually, and as a community of his people. When we enter into his new covenant through faith, we become priests and kings. Now there's some now and don't go boasting around saying, I'm a king, I'm a king, I'm a king. You'll get what you deserve. Right? <laughs> but God has called you to reign in life. Through our, though our ruling is similar to that of the Lord Jesus in this age. It is in the midst of our enemies, in the middle of our trials are precious. We endure disasters, disappointments, deceit, disease, difficulties, even death. We overcome and endure them, according to the script Revelation, through him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God, to his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now, the things I'm saying to you today give you a new sense of why you're alive. You have dignity, folks. You have dignity. You have destiny. Don't go boasting about it. Just live it. Does it give you a new sense of your identity? You are in Christ Jesus. That's the best address on the planet. In Christ Jesus. Have you trusted him? Have you been received into his covenant of grace? Shall we we pray together?
Jesus, our King, our Master. We thank you that you are in continual session in heaven, seated in your Father's throne. You are reigning over your people. You are also still a priest who is interceding for them and representing them there. It is absolutely remarkable that you fulfill all of these prophetic, biblical images in one person. Jesus, we worship you. But you have given to us to bear something of your image on earth, to get on with ruining through the difficulties of life, in the midst of our enemies too, and to be those who represent the Lord to people and represent people to the Lord. So, Father, we thank you for this dignity that you call us into. I pray that word you kind of wrote in my heart very early this morning. You have no second-class children. May be a warning, a little wake-up call for some of us that we are called to far more than we've dared to believe. The dignity you give us and the opportunities you give us are far greater than we dare to imagine. Thank you, Father, for this incredible privilege of being called the children of God. And we are that now. We will be even greater in your grace in a day to come. We will be blemish-free. We'll be rid of all of the mess, all of the mixture. But even now, you call us your children. Thank you, Father. Let me just say a word to anyone here who doesn't identify yourself with any, almost any of what I've been saying. Do you need to turn to the Lord Jesus? Do you need to give your life over to him? Take a moment now and do that, please. I urge you. Say, I submit myself into your hands, Jesus. I'll call you my Lord, my God, and my King. That'll do. That's enough prayer. Just bring that to him right now. Amen. Amen. Amen.